Recorded live. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. Once again, you are listening to the VMware Community's Roundtable Podcast. This is podcast number 411. My name is Derek Nelson, and with me today, I have my co-host, John White. John, how you doing? Doing really well, Eric. Uh, gone for two weeks, uh, finally back in the studio. Um, once again, uh, unnecessary to print out all these uh, emails demanding my return. Um, just forwarding them to me is fine. Uh, well, we just wanted you to feel loved. Okay. So, yeah, All right. Big stack of paper saying, John White, we need you back. Right? Oh, see, Facebook Live people know that it's not true. It's off in the corner, Facebook Live people. Yeah, we took that off, yeah. off the thing. We also have our first set um, thing. We have Ooh. the Fusion Pro 10 anniversary that uh, Michael Roy brought us over. Nice. Uh, very nice. I don't think you can buy these anymore, but you know, Fusion 10, Workstation 10, we had them on the other day. and. We do definitely get that. And interesting, this isn't a CD-ROM. It's a metal coaster, but I think it's a weapon. I think you know, <laughs> get it in the study with the Fusion Pro. You know, it's, a, it's, it's fairly heavy, too. Oh, yeah, pretty nice. Fusion pretty nice 10 idea. weaponized. Uh, so we yeah. do have now uh, Facebook Live streaming again. Katie's over in the corner. And the good news is we finally upgraded our audio so that audio for the um, live stream on Facebook is working properly. We can hear the guests online, as well as the people in the studio. So we're very happy with that. And you guys might notice an improved audio, right, from the standpoint of we managed to all make all the mics work right and balance them. So good for there. On the show today, we have Tom Korn at The Real Tom Korn back in uh, the studio with us. Uh, I think we haven't had Tom on since March, uh, where we've been through VMworld. We've been through all of all the momentum season activity. We've done all the launches, and so we thought we'd have Tom back on to talk about what's happening in security and how that's going. So we'll get to that. Before we get to that, just a couple news items. The only news item I have is what's the Bay Area report, you know. Oh, did, my goodness. drive over? That's true. I'd, I'd crossed Dumbarton Bridge today. One side of the, of the bay had rain on it, and the other side didn't. It was amazing. I wish I had, right. like, a panorama camera. And I think we're going to flip into the, uh, the snow reports. So I would expect you to drive up to Tahoe, get their report, and then come back because it's hitting winter time now, and I think they got their first snow up there. You know, so hitting that, so I'm excited about that as well. I'm not excited about the uh, the traffic of people trying to get up to Tahoe. Corey Romero, you're on the call. Jeez, this microphone is so good. I'm in the now. I am on the call. How's it going? We also have you in the corner of the room on the beam, but no one's going to see you on the Facebook Live feed there. Um, yeah, that's right. I was trying going. to leave, make some room for, for, for everyone on the, on the table. All of your experts going well. No, no problem. Yeah. You announced, you announced the, the cloud program, uh, 135 yes. plus the experts in the cloud program now. And Exciting. Who are you working with in the BU on the cloud stuff? I'm working with uh, Richard Monroe. Richard Monroe, right. Okay. Yeah, Richard yep. and I are uh, built, currently building a calendar of events uh, for, the, for the program. And so we're... Uh, we're building a calendar of events, also uh, coming up with a list of software and things and tools that we can give the experts uh, to help them. Right. So that's perfect. So what we've been doing is breaking the experts into subgroups, and now we have three. Uh, I'm, I see a security subgroup in the, in the future, and how this works is we're basically looking for people that are interested in the subject that are blogging about the topics, and then we put them in a expert subgroup so that the BUs can work directly with them do some briefings, you know, engage with them, uh, answer questions, whatever that is, so that uh, the V experts are actually active in social channels and running the blogs. And we do have in the studio also Elsa Mayer, who runs the blog program. Elsa, welcome back. 
we're still trying to get her to be more, very community oriented when she talks. So, you know, we're we're going to get you involved in, you know, the real Elsa Mayer. How's it going? Going great. Yeah. Good. Good. Welcome back to the show. We were uh, last week at uh, VMUG. Uh, sorry for the audio quality on that. That one was pretty shady. Um, we had a single mic there. Uh, we're never going to use that mic again. <laughs> uh, we're going to take the mobile mics down to the mugs, but that was a lot of fun. It was fun to see everybody. Uh, we got Paula Roach to come by and talk about what they were doing in the labs, so mm. a lot of fun there. We're going to try to do some more um, mobile locations, so get a little bit of travel budget allocated. Maybe we'll get out and uh, meet some more meet some more people at mugs in different places. We're trying to trying to do that. We want to buy a used van, you know, like a motorhome, and hit the road. Solving right. crimes. On with the on with the podcast. Tom Corn, welcome back to the show. Uh, you can do a minute uh, what you do at VMware. A lot of people have heard you. I think you've been on twice now or maybe three times. So do the who are you, what do you do uh, at VMware, and then we'll get into what's going on with security at VMware. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, so I run what's called the Security Products Group. Uh, we were started uh, about three, four years ago to start looking at how we could apply virtualization to secure things. And usually the way people look and ask questions about virtualization, they'll say, well, how do I secure it? And the question that we were trying to answer is, hey, there's some very fundamentally unique properties of virtualization in cloud that could be applied to really rethink how security was done. Uh, so my team uh, now actively develops a series of new technologies uh, at one significant one that actually launched as a, as a brand new, pretty significant product was AppDepend. Um, so that's, that's my team that built that. Yeah, it's interesting because I saw when you first came, right, it was like you with some people trying to figure out what we might want to do, right? And it wasn't you had a, a set of products that you could talk about. You're basically just covering what security was about, what are the challenges with security. And I, I see over the now, now year, year and a half that you've been here that we've actually rolled out, you know, real products to talk about real issues and how we can use our product set to actually, you know, change the way IT is happening. And from yeah, a security perspective. It's, certainly it's come a long way. I mean, uh, again, what excited me is when uh, Pat Gelsinger basically said, you know, look, if, if you had access to the inside of the hypervisor, what could you do differently in terms of the whole security model? And uh, <clears throat> that's actually pretty exciting. There's a lot of things that you could do fundamentally different. And then the question is, how do you build that? How do you build that in a robust way? How do you, and there were a number of problems in which we can apply it to. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. Um, actually seeing the, the fruits of all of that uh, R&D uh, come out and, and there's been an incredible response. I mean, it really is a really com simple and yet compelling model to, uh, to secure uh, applications running in virtual environments. Yeah, I think that we, we did get a lot of good momentum around traction um, people talking about it now. When we first talked about it, everybody was like, well, okay, we can encrypt vSphere, right? And we came out with 6.5 with all the encryption all the way down. And, and they were talking security from a tactical perspective on the, you know, managing to lock down the, from the booting your machine and secure boot and encrypted boot all the way up. But now they're actually, you know, you see the dialogue moving forward into how to, you know, deal with the whole application stack and security is no longer just locking things down, but actually, you know, the access control, right, for, you know, I think you used the term, I forget the term where uh, you need least yeah, privilege. Least privilege. Yeah. Right. You know, it's a, it's a, a fundamental 
precept. It's not something new. Uh, least privilege has been a principle was actually developed by Professor Salzman at uh, MIT in the early 70s. Uh, it's you know basically the equivalent of need to know. You know when you think of uh, you know military applications, incredibly powerful model. The question is how do you operationalize something like that? But, but taking a step back, you know the the, the the fundamental security issues that we saw that just weren't really being addressed well by security vendors, in part because it's very difficult for a security vendor to tap into this. So one of, some of it is, some of it is we, we overinvest in trying to prevent infiltration in environments at the expense of creating more resilient environments inside. The attack surface is so broad right. Right. that there will be compromised systems that happen. It cannot be that if someone gets in somewhere, they have the keys to the kingdom. You know, from there, the next observation is that we are very heavily invested in identifying threats, doing lots of threat detection technologies. We are underinvested in um, reducing the attack surface in the first place. And uh, and part of the challenge there is it's been is an architectural issue, uh, which I'll describe in a second. And the third is that we're very focused. Security is very focused and aligned to infrastructure. We protect servers, VMs, network links, and not focused enough on the applications and data that are really ultimately what you're trying to protect. And, you know, servers and network links and VMs are not very good proxies for distributed applications. So these were sort of the three precepts that sort of drove a strategy to say, you know, number one, we need to focus on applications and data. Two, we can do a far better job at reducing the attack surface by compartmentalizing applications and data and, and, and creating a least privileged environment where uh, uh, really the things that are needed by the application can happen, but things that aren't needed by the application are closed off or shut down or at least monitored by default. And then the third precept was we can help the entire security ecosystem to align their security products, controls, policies to the application, as opposed to they don't have that context and they're simply aligning to what they see on the wire they are or on the machine they happen to be deployed. And that model of saying, we'll be in a position to help our customers using the virtual layer to surface what applications are running and what are the boundaries and characteristics of those applications. You can use us to compartmentalize and create least privilege, and then all of your security products that you use become better, not just because there's a smaller problem to begin with now, but because we can provide your security products with that context, and they can use the virtual infrastructure to re respond. And so all of the work with NSX and micro-segmentation has been doing that from a network perspective. Right. Right? Take a network overlay and look at the boundary of the application compartmentalize it, create least privilege from a network perspective, and then allow security products to insert themselves in and along that boundary. And that's been obviously a, 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 the single biggest driver of network virtualization. There's many uh, use cases for it, but that's probably the most prominent one. App defense <clears throat> is really uh, attacking it from the other side, which is compute. It's saying um, the actual application that's running, can we create least privilege for that? And solving that problem actually is a, a, a huge, a huge uh, step forward. Uh, but I'll, I'll pause there. I, I, that's, but that's, that's really what we're trying to do from a, a strategy perspective. Right. 
Um, Graham asks on the chat, what's the real difference between least privilege and zero trust? Well, you know, I guess the, the simple answer is that uh, zero trust is a bit more of a, a marketing term that got developed uh, uh, or actually sort of, years. well, it, it, more recently than that. And in fact, I think actually the first uh, coining of that came from uh, uh, Forrester. But really, it all goes back to the, the fundamental academic principle of least privilege. Uh, and least privilege can be applied uh, not just to user access, right? Only the users that should have access have access but it can be applied to uh, functions. What functions should be allowed to operate or what should a system component be able to connect to? All of those sort of fall under this guise of least privilege. One way of thinking about it is uh, we have built relatively flat networks and relatively generic machines, computing machines, that can do lots and lots of stuff. And uh, by having them open and uh, all fully connected, the infrastructure is utility and it's easy for people to build. Yeah. What the security result is that I have a lot of uh, non-value added risk in my environment because there are things that I don't need or use to drive my business, but all they are are things that can be manipulated. It also creates massive complexity. It creates operational complexity when you're trying to troubleshoot a problem, but it creates huge security complexity because when under attack, there is so much noise, there is so much complexity that uh, try and make heads or tails of what's really going on is, is next to impossible. And that really is part, part, of, the, part of the challenge. And, and, it's, it's really, and I've said this before that some of the biggest advances in security, I think, in the next 18 months won't come from security vendors. They're actually going to come from people who are in a position on the infrastructure to um, create some architectural changes in how security is done. Um, obviously, we are um, uh, investing very heavily in this area. I think we can make a real difference, but I don't think we'll be the only one. I, I, I think that there's a lot of advancement that's going to happen here from places that people have traditionally not looked to to solve security problems, in part because it, it, it has to be solved at a foundational level. Right. All right. Um, John, so, you have a question? Go yeah, ahead. actually, I do have a question. What, you, you raise an issue here, right, which is a lot of uh, security spending has been driven um, based on requirements that are almost developed hand-in-hand -hand with traditional security vendors, yeah. right, or, or security, traditional security analysts. So is there a way that we can actually go in and solve these, solve these problems and check these boxes and therefore get, you know, justify our security spend um, by actually solving these problems in this way that are, you know, we're, you know, not actually looked upon as maybe a traditional security vendor. Yeah, I guess there's maybe two, two parts to that answer. Uh, one is that um, uh, really, I think the way to look at security from a financial perspective is actually as a risk management exercise, meaning you're going to spend whatever you're going to spend. The only question is, are you spending capital investment, time, attention, on the things that have, will have the most material reduction in risk, right? And, uh, you know, I could argue today that there is a lot of things that have to be re-examined. Um, do I run a, a traditional antivirus on a Linux server? Or do I focus that, for, you know, that spend on uh, creating least privileged environments, hardening it, patching it, um, right? One, I think, will have a much larger, more material impact on risk reduction. And I'm not the only one saying this. Uh, Gartner, for example, in their cloud workload protection framework is saying the exact same thing. 
Um, the other side is there are some things that are, I think are going to uh, that are pushing this to a head. Uh, one is clearly everyone is experiencing breaches. I, I don't think I've visited a customer that hasn't had some insecurity incidents uh, in the last couple of years, frankly. Um, but there's models of security that are getting harder and harder in a more agile DevOps world. Uh, and I'll give you a good example. Uh, you know, we rolled out AppDefense, um, which is basically looking at uh, it, it uses the virtual layer to figure out what was the application provision there in the first place, and, and basically maintaining a model of intended state, provisioned intended state, and then saying, look, if, if that application starts doing things that isn't in its manifest, um, you'll be in a position to know and to take action. Someone's rootkitting the operating system, introducing a whole bunch of new processes, altering processes, you'll know and be able to do something about it. Very simple, very powerful model. Now, we are building this in a highly agile way, we come out with versions that part of uh, this is delivered as a service, and we can, we're re our release schedule is every Tuesday. We're not the only ones in this world of DevOps and agile development. People create releases like that. You know, the traditional, hey, every nine months I'll come out with a new version. Very powerful. Now, <clears throat> when we do a security review at the end of that product, uh, the V1, we had a two-month security review, manual, going through the architecture, security Rightly so, getting their arms around, how are we going to protect this once this goes into production? Well, every Tuesday, I can't do a two-month security review. <laughs> so what two things are going to happen? Either we'll slow down, which won't happen, and the other is, or we'll be out of sync. And that's what every company is dealing with. The security team really cannot understand the applications that are running because they're moving too fast for the model that exists today. And if we can create a model, however, that can tap into the knowledge of the application team using provisioning, using automation, and collaboration with the application team, we can truly create a agile sort of DevOps approach to security. And in fact, what we're seeing with, uh, with AppDefense is, is exactly that, right? We're tapping into Chef and Puppet and VRA. We're tapping into Ansible and Maven and Jenkins. And through those, we get the embedded knowledge of the application team. We're building a mobile companion app so that the application owners um, are able to see what's happening to their application and the security team can in an instant contact and collaborate with an application owner over something. It's a very new model, but very compelling and very timely. I can honestly say, you know, now we've not only rolled out AppDefense, we have, we have real customers, we have systems in production today. Um, <clears throat> that was going to be my next question, by the way. So oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Which it's, is, you know, you've announced a VMware where you're going. But oh, yeah. it's, it's moved really fast. And uh, I, you know, I, I think there will be a point where it will make no sense for someone not to turn this on on all their VMs. I mean, it, it's the notion of saying, hey, look, I know what's running on that VM. Uh, it should do what it's doing. It's, it's, it's so compelling in a data center. For an end user, it's you know, a trickier problem. But for a data center component, you know, the Apache server that's at the front end of the, of the medical record system doesn't surf the web. It doesn't try out new apps from time to time that it's just read in Lifehacker, right? It, it, it serves a very specific purpose and does certain things. And when the operating system is overriding a boot record or is suddenly a process is modified that is now communicating to a bunch of different addresses, that shouldn't really happen. Now, it may not mean that what I do is so draconian is shut everything down. But it may mean that now I know and now I can insert more visibility or maybe I can contain certain things. 
So we're really using the power of virtualization to understand what's provisioned, to understand what's running, to be able to automate and orchestrate response, and also to protect our position, right? Leveraging the hypervisor's sort of separate trust domain position to be able to do some of this monitoring and actions from a, a safe position. Really compelling model. And yeah. I can say that now when I deal with customers, I uh, almost unanimously, I don't sell the problem. Right. Uh, I, it's really showing people how it works. I, I do have a question around that. You, you mentioned the you know Ansible, Puppet Chef, Jenkins, where it's almost like you have to teach your application developers a new, a new protocol as well, right? Where you're, when you're building your app, deploying your app, you then would have to you know, set up a profile for AppDefense or some way for AppDefense to know what the, a secure profile for that app is. Yeah, so, so uh, that's not the way we're approaching The way we're approaching it is, uh, you know, the analogy I give is, you know, you, you have your first child, and it's the relationship between the parent and the doctor that develops over time, where the parent knows the child, and the doctor knows illnesses and, and remedies, right? When you first have your first child, you're freaking out, you're reading WebMD and Dr. Spock, and you see every new illness, and you start calling the doctor every day saying, I think I see these symptoms in my child. That's the equivalent of chasing threat. Um, what you eventually hopefully move is, after the doctor says you're no longer allowed to read WebMD, Dr. Spock, is uh, they say, look, what you can do is understand your child and tell me when things change. That's when we should really engage and talk, right? And that's sort of the model here. So what's different than what you just described okay. is we're not forcing the application team to become security experts to do anything different. What we're saying is, um, uh, especially as you start using increased use of automation, right? right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to do anything different. We're going to tap into that automatically, right? App Defense will hook into vCenter automatically it will then start to correlate with whatever provisioning and automation you have. If you don't have any, it has ways of learning it. Okay. Right? It will, it will tap into that. It will start to correlate that. It will present to you, here is, instead of a list of VMs, here right, is a list right. of applications. Within an application, service tiers. Within service tiers, VMs. Software behaviors. Um, uh, <clears throat> now, the experience changes for the app developer. When they go for their security review, there's not a lot of manual, let me walk you through PowerPoint. It's let's actually look at the system and sort of get agreement on here and point out a couple of things. So that security review is not two months. It's, it's, a, it's a couple of days. And then um, once the thing is put into protection mode, what can happen is that the, uh, if the SOC, the Security Operations Center, sees alerts around an application, one of the things they have at their disposal is, I want to communicate right now with the app owner I see some Python scripts running in this right. Apache server doing some weird stuff. You know, I'm about to do something about it, but can you give me some context? So the answer might be, hey, you know, it's not a security issue. My bad. I, I actually was hacking around. I was doing some things to do something. Or it might be, I have no idea what that is, but can we coordinate on the response? Because that's a very sensitive application, right? And so we're, we're trying to create a model that um, I, I think allows security to align better with applications, which I think is where everything in IT is going, aligning more around applications, and to be much more agile. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a very compelling model, and, and um, we're getting that reaction from customers. That, that, that addresses one of the questions in the chat that what really is 
if you can't get the app owners to buy into this, how does this work? And what you're saying is there's an AI engine or there's AI uh, in app defense that takes a look and figures out what the footprint looks like when it's new, right? No, and then monitors, monitors that and then sets, sets reactions and reporting yeah. and so forth around what that footprint behavior is. 100%. And, and look, it's not just new apps. It's legacy apps. And it's not just custom apps. Uh, we have one customer who put it under Exchange. You know, Exchange is running. We figured out the components that are on an exchange and how this is working. We figure out, you know, the, we, they, they had installed various security agents and other types of agents that are on that machine. The system went through. It learned it. It sort of, it, we use it. We have a process where it goes and it pre-validates uh, those components. So it's, uh, it's a, uh, uh, you know, a very powerful and, and actually relatively simple model. The policies in App Defense are not like what you would think of as, say, a firewall. Right. It's, okay. it's uh, here's an application. What do you want to have happen if what's running is different than mm. what was intended? It's as simple as that. Right, right. When, when Exchange starts writing to the master boot record, what's supposed to happen? That's not supposed to happen, but what's the response? Well, so uh, the, the way it works is uh, uh, we will outline the application, we'll outline the service tiers in the application, and uh, what you would say is at a service tier level, that level of granularity today, what do you want to have happen if what's running doesn't match what's intended? And the options are, you know, here is a list. We built a list of automated routines or orchestrated routines. Some of them use just ESX. Some of them use vCenter. Some of them use NSX. So it depends on what you have. Uh, they range from things like, you know, quarantine the machine to snapshot memory to suspend the process to insert full packet capture. So there's a range of routines. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, uh, things that are, you know, you know, something is overriding on the operating system and doing something, you know, clearly, clearly bad, the answer might be something more draconian. But uh, in many of the cases, it's about, I just need more visibility there right now. The challenge that security often happens, so there is a preventive piece, but the challenge that security often has is, um, I, I can't be looking everywhere all the time. And uh, there's just too much complexity for me to make sense of things. But if I know something is going on with Exchange, specifically with this service here of Exchange, where the following things happen, I mean, it spells it out for me in a very simple term and has either automatically done something or give me a big red easy button to take action. Uh, it, it's a very, very, it's a huge step forward, huge step forward. So it really, there's there's two different uh, kind of uh, paths that I see. One is an operational path, and hey, this is uh, operationally, this is what these uh, applications and VMs are supposed to be doing. And then the other path is kind of this security path, right? Hey, this is the information that I want to see. I actually don't want to see it all the time. I don't want to have this deep introspection of everything that's going on all the time. But can we negotiate and say, hey, if things deviate, this much at, at this uh, kind of margin, can we start turning on additional introspection? Can we start doing packet capture? Can we start maybe, oh, you've passed this threshold, now I need to uh, quarantine? Is, is that kind of the direction we're going it, in? It is, but uh, there are, uh, think of it this way there are certain types of things that you would look at that it's really simply a question of it either is or it isn't. And then there is another category of things that are it's a question. You know, if you were looking at you know, CPU utilization or whatever, and you start to see significant deviations in CPU, that might be something that says, listen, 
it's not it's not a, a, a binary decision, but once I start seeing something more significant. But a lot of the things that we're looking at, the characteristics, are things like um, what what is the, you know, there's static portions of the operating system kernel. They're either the same or they're not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, you know, there is a small subset of processes running on a VM that should ever communicate out or be talked to. That's actually not a very brittle model. Right. So when I have that Apache server there and it starts talking to some different things, it either is or it isn't. And when it starts right. talking to different things, you know, you either, you could, it could be a security issue, like it's now talking to a command and control server or it's trying to move laterally in the environment. It could be an operational issue. Right? It could be an app team made some substantial change, didn't tell anybody, went in there, sort of made. What I'm hearing from security teams is I actually want to know about both. Right. right. I, uh, it helps for me. I actually am blind to both. Um, and so uh, a lot of what people are doing today is looking at, you know, uh, oh, the last kind of category of things is what processes are running. And for those, that usually falls into a category of, uh, for most customers, um, if I start seeing new processes, again, a binary decision, new processes, um, first thing I just want is more visibility. Sure. Right. Traditional whitelisting. Mm-hmm. is essentially process whitelisting. It's that last part I just described. And it's a brittle model. It's hard to make definitive decisions all the time about that. Um, the ability of us to understand not just the machine, but the network and the behavior gives us access to some things that are not very brittle, that shouldn't change, especially for a mission-critical application, and it allows us to have sort of very clear guidelines of what least privilege should be. And, uh, you know, as a result, very, very uh, simple and powerful model. That's really interesting because I can imagine that, you know, with something that's, you know, really, really important, maybe revenue generating, maybe it's uh, the interface between the public Internet and and, uh, some uh, private uh, databases, that there's going to be, you know, uh, the current model is like very strict change management. And, And that has been the basically the proxy for do we have good security the, the proxy is do we have good change management but but maybe it should be more along the lines of hey we know what's supposed to be right about the operating system we know um, and maybe here's a question I'll ask you we know what you know parts of the memory should and should not be looked at and uh, and you know hey suddenly you know some of those things are changing hey that's a problem and I, I really like that idea Here, here's some binaries um, this is right. This is not right. Yeah, yeah. You know. it's not 100%. Look, uh, and I suppose another way of thinking about it is uh, all of those VMs are general purpose computers. They can do millions of things. They can run all kinds of processes. They can communicate in all kinds of ways. But you don't use 98% of those in your application. You're doing a handful of things. And now your ability to say, look, here is a mission critical application. And that component that sits up over there that really needs to be doing these things, let it do its thing. I want to know if it's ever not doing one of those things and what I can do in order to quickly respond. And and you're absolutely right that the notion of, you know, the reason this isn't just a firewall is that uh, the reality is I need a form of graduated response, right? It's not just block things. These are mission critical applications. You just block things. Uh, Many decisions are not black and white. So if you're, you block something and all of a sudden you cause disruption, that's not a good thing. But the notion of saying, look, anytime it's different, it is worth 
looking at? And maybe the answer is blocked, but maybe the answer is I need to start getting more visibility. I need to increase logging. I need to get full packet capture. I want a snapshot memory. Now is when I look at that. Now is when I can now insert security controls that I may not have at that point. This is what we're kind of getting to at a more resilient security model, which is saying, let's uh, clearly, we're not saying don't have perimeter security. And clearly we're not saying don't have you know, threat detection. We're saying that the biggest step forward you can do is gain some understanding of what's running in your environment and what it's supposed to do, and let's lock that down. Now you have a smaller attack surface. Now you have much better signal to noise for whatever does remain. Now you have better context to make sense of that. And you can use the virtual infrastructure to automate response. It's, it's powerful because security is an asymmetric battle. Defense is always harder than offense. And uh, that is especially true at the point of infiltration. Someone outside is firing thousands of bullets at you. You've got to stop every one. They only have to land one. But as an attacker gets in, they still have to do things. But now they're in your house, and some of the doors are locked, and the lights are turned off. And if you understand your environment and you can grab the least number of opening things, they're going to have to make mistakes. They're going to try doors that are locked. They're going to, and now you can respond. Yeah. You can't do that and everything's For me, the analogy is, you know, the old security model is we lock the doors, the windows, and maybe we put an alarm on the doors and windows. But this approach is you're, you're putting infrared sensors on all the furniture, right? Anybody starts walking around and touching furniture, doing things with the things inside, that also creates a pattern that we can detect. Or if I'm running uh, a business like uh, like I'm a restaurant, right? Say so I have a restaurant. I okay. I know that here's my uh, my servers and they go and they go to customers and here's my my host stand and that person walks with customers to tables and here's my bus uh, my bus workers and they take things off tables and they go back and they you know hand it off to the dishwasher. Now here's this uh, this bus person and they walk over to the cash register and start doing stuff. Wait a minute. Yeah. That yeah, wasn't supposed. That's a better analogy, right? Yeah. That 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 deviates from all the expected behaviors. Now I want some extended and, and better uh, security. I have a couple of questions from chat that I want to get to. So, uh, can you get it to work at the OS level and monitor at the actual OS? Uh, well, I'm not sure exactly the the the, the question. So, architecturally, we we wanted we we architected the sort of uh, hypervisor portion of it. So that we would have visibility, both uh, we would have a very granular visibility and control in the guest. But we also wanted it to be um, uh, isolated in a sense, be able to have a protected space. That's one of the challenges of doing right. Most security controls is a, are kernel drivers in the operating system, and um, as such, they're sitting in the same trust domain as the attacker, which means right. the attacker comes into the application. Yeah, I turns think it on. I think that's what the the Graham what was curious is is the OS an app. Can, can we sit down at the VM and then just... So we, we are doing that. So we have some component of our technology that's in the host address space that we can watch over things that should be static, for example, through, through memory. So we can look at static portions of the operating system that way. We also have something, something in the guest address space so that we can have granular control there and look at things OS and above. And we monitor and protect that from the component that we have in the host. So it's a very compelling model. We do get visibility and uh, both OS and up, 
so we can we can watch over the operating system as well as the application riding above it and we can do it and we can operate a sort of a protected zone to uh, so, so we start effectively start creating a separate trust domain for security now is there a, does that mean that we're operating system independent or are we you know able to look at any any operating system or is there a subset of operating systems that we're starting with yeah. How does that work? Right so now? the work that we're doing today is not operating system independent because we're looking at, you know, for us to watch over sort of the OS as well as the other applications above it. And the reason, part of the reason to look at the OS is we're trying to create a sort of a trust from the ground up, mm -hmm. right? We have to understand, you know, think of being lied to as we go up. Uh, so uh, we have um, components that can work with Linux, we have components that work with Windows. Um, we don't, as of today, support every version ever created of Windows. Um, uh, you know, we support a, a few back. I'm actually intrigued with going um, further back than most would, and I'll mm -hmm. tell you why. Uh, there is a lot of critical applications running on operating systems that are so old, they have no patches, right? right. They're like, uh, mm -hmm. they're essentially end of life. And I'm not just talking about, you know, unimportant applications. I'm talking about mission critical applications, SCADA networks, you know, the banking system. And the and they, they they are not moving forward because it's a huge deal once they got all of this operationally working to switch some of those things out, and the ability to say, hey, by using by virtualizing that machine, we can actually add a layer of protection by watching it from underneath to mm -hmm. see if it changes and to watch the application. Very very compelling. But it's but you know again to answer your question. It, it there are um, we essentially support both Linux and Windows and sort of different versions of it. But it's not OS independent. Gotcha. Yeah, I can definitely understand that obsolete operating system use case. Like that's really a kind of a critical use case, even in you know when we're talking about security. And we've been looking at it from a network perspective, but if we can look at it from a process perspective too, then that would be even more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and look, this they're they're sit side by side. You don't need NSX to to run this. It can leverage NSX uh, so that you can use NSX to respond. You can leverage NSX because we can hand NSX some of this information, so we can create micro segments around the app we call Scope. Um, but people can start with this independently. Okay, so that's a really good uh, question. Then answer to a question that people have been asking: Is this like a, a NSX uh, feature. It is not. It is a separate. It's a separate product. It's a separate product. Yeah. Uh, think of this. This is sort of what what NSX does for security for the network. This is doing for compute. Great. So uh, that gets us to a tactical set of questions I have. Right. So you announced this at VMworld. Yeah. I think that's when it went live. Uh, so congratulations to you and the team for Thank getting you. this out. Um, from a standpoint of how do I buy it? What's the licensing model for it? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, obviously it is available to, to purchase today, both through our direct sent as well as through, uh, uh, through, the, through the channel. Right. So uh, download bits, install somewhere, and use it? Yeah, so AppDefense is actually delivered as a SaaS service. Okay. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Uh, so that component we talked about, uh, today you can run it on all your sort of private clouds, wherever you have your cloud, or you own those machines. But we're also building it into public cloud. So we're building it into VMC on AWS. Uh, we will ultimately be making it available for uh, sort of our uh, vCloud sort of partners, uh, right? And um, 
And the idea from a management perspective, you being able to have a unified federated model where you have one place to manage a policy and wherever that workload is, or even if the app is split across multiple, that it just mm-hmm. works. The other thing is when you're deriving intended state and evaluating an application, you want access to <clears throat> lots of uh, uh, supporting data that can automatically help you vet it out and tell you what the application is. And so we're using a bunch of data from, from uh, both declarative and, and comparative sources. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a component on-prem, <clears throat> and then there's this uh, uh, management plane sort of service that, that, that attaches to. And then we have this uh, secure um, uh, gateway that gets uh, uh, connected to every vCenter. And that creates all that very, very secure connection on how it handles all the security of the data and the connections in there. And the management will never reach in someone's environment. It reaches out to essentially ask questions and to learn things. Um, and so we can, the, uh, uh, the install is, is very, very simple. But if you contact them, it's very simple for us to kind of remotely send you things and get you set up. Uh, it is a per CPU per year, right? The list on this is, uh, the list price is, is $500 a CPU per year. Right. It's a very, very sort of a affordable thing. We're trying to make this something that... That's you know, a physical socket? Yes. Okay. Not okay. virtual CPU. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your Yeah, that your does. Question. That does. I mean, we, we get, obviously, a couple of people in chat saying, like, oh, no on-prem version? And the answer, I think, would be no. Right? You're saying it's a SaaS service deliverable. Correct. And it's part of the VMware cloud offering now as well. Right? Correct. Correct. You know, we, we have been asked about uh, the on-prem uh, 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 thing, and, and particularly, you know, we've been doing some work with, uh, you know, defense departments and other things where they have sort of highly critical environments. And so we, we are looking at various ways and schemes of being able to do that uh, for folks. The, um, the, uh, we, we've started, of course, with, with the cloud, and I think that is where a lot of things are heading. Uh, people are using cloud services. Even antivirus is essentially a cloud service today. Right, right. right. Um, uh, it really adds a bunch of very, very unique value, and it's part of what allows us to really innovate incredibly fast here. Is there a, is there a value-added part of that, too? For example, if I'm going and saying, hey, this is my known good state of uh, my Exchange server, do we say, are you sure? Because there's this process that's running there already that 100%. we've never seen on an Exchange 100%, server. right? We're looking at some external sources of stuff. Uh, we have a bunch of uh, efforts now in the machine learning area to do comparative things anonymizing data from across our customer base and being able to say, you're not the only one on the planet running Exchange on Windows 2012 with that version of the Tanium agent with this and this and this. And there's a couple things that just stand out from the population of what you're doing that mm-hmm. you might want to take a look at. There are, there's very interesting things that we can do from that model. We're sort of taking the security of it very, very seriously. We understand there's going to be people that... Uh, uh, you know, for some reason or not need to be able to have things that are cordoned off. And over time, we will have a variety of solutions to accommodate various kinds of needs. But, but right now, that's, that's where we're at. So cloud service, every Tuesday, new release. Yeah. How, do you do, how do you handle that from a customer standpoint? Are they, are they willing to accept? And how do they know? Is it, you know? Do you have kind of SLAs on, we will make sure that this feature always does what it's supposed to do and that what we're doing is enhancements and how are you guys managing that? Yeah, well, so first, you know, thankfully we're not the first uh, company in the world to right. actually create a SaaS service. Right. Uh, it's actually a reasonably sort of well understood. It's, it's clearly, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's early days for VMware in these, but a lot of my team I've actually brought in from 
uh, folks that have come from Amazon and other places yeah, that have done that. Right. Um, it's 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 a it's a fantastic uh, thing. Well, first of all, architecturally, it's not like we're changing the components in vSphere every Tuesday, right? right. That's uh, actually something that we built in. We're using the vSphere team. Uh, <clears throat> the things that we can change more often are things that are more on the management plane level. One of the nice things that's about that is it allows us to augment data sources. It allows us to augment analytics and integrations. You know, the hardest thing for a vendor to get right is operationalization, right? That's the complaint all the time. Like, this, it's so hard to use. It's the workflow. It's the integrations with the things that I have. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are and how much you study this. Until you really get in the hands of real customers doing real work, you're never going to be able to really understand that and refine that. And the ability to say, you told me that this doesn't work for you and it needs to work this way. And you're not waiting nine months, but you'll get it next Tuesday is amazing. The ability for us to um, try capabilities on certain customers before we roll it out to others, right? I mean, the ability for us to know, hey, no one's really using these capabilities. Why is that? You know, did we do a poor job on those capabilities or is that not where the value is? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's uh, you know, in some ways an indirect value to customers, but it's, uh, uh, so, so to answer to your question, uh, some components can t obviously change faster than others. Sure. And uh, we're designing it in a way that allows us to, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, not break things right. just because one component is an earlier version. All of us data center operators who are used to the package software model are still, still, still struggling, <laughs> think, you know come to terms with the whole thing. But uh, the new generation that lives on Amazon, it's Google, a, those guys are just, oh, this is, this is how it works. Yeah, right? I mean, they're, you know, it's right. young, uh, some young guys on the team that are like, uh, you know, I, I think they would be shocked at how we used to do it. So uh, right. Uh, right. here's my box. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have the box. I, I can still buy you a box. I mean, it won't have anything in it. But, uh, <laughs> um, so you've, you, you uh, customers, last thing we'll do before we talk a little bit about Tom Corn and how your Twitter following is doing. Yeah. But before we get there, um, you, you went live, you have customers, are there any uh, interesting customers you can mention? Uh, do you have any showcase customers yet? Do you, tell, me, tell me about your, your customer profile, how's it going? Uh, it's, you know, it's good, uh, we'll probably be making some public announcements shorter, shortly on some of the uh, customers. You know, the challenge always in security is... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nobody, Nobody wants to talk about it. But, so, you know, we've, uh, we've got some customers in insurance and banking, um, in uh, you know a, a number of the financial sector, credit union, um, uh, but you know it's interesting. I am getting you know we, we knew we would get enterprise and we knew we'd get government. I was surprised by um, the reception in the commercial segment, the smaller company segment. Uh, one of the, one of the companies we're starting to work with is like a, a large school district. I mean uh, we're starting to see folks who are saying, look. Um, Actually, this is the basic model I would do. Like, right. not, it's not the thing I add at the end. This is not the fancy uh, advanced analytics that I would add at the end. This is like the basic thing I would start with right. um, as a simple mechanism to sort of lock things down. It actually is a basic thing. It's an easy thing to implement. Just right. go look at my apps and make sure things look good. Yeah. And, and give me warning flags when I... And yeah. it's also, uh, you know, this is uh, what we built uh, into the hypervisor is in version 6.5. It's one of the... I think really compelling reasons, not the only one, there's many, but one of the compelling reasons to get to 6.5, and a lot of the commercial market is actually much quicker to adopt. Um, you know, We're actually going to do next, next week's podcast is 6.5 reasons to upgrade to 6.5. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll, I'd love to hear what your half reason is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> half defense. Okay. We're not no. quite sure yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> Hopefully that's one and a half reasons to, uh, to upgrade. Right. So is it, what's, what's it worked extremely well from a customer perspective, and what do you think your biggest challenge is? that you're going to be working on? Uh, so, you know, look, one challenge is just uh, people, you know, people process, get, get, yeah, getting on adoption. six five, uh, oh, okay. right? So, mm. uh, look, uh, uh, so sometimes we'll go into an account and uh, with clients and they, and they love it and they're just, uh, you know, they have a, a certain plan of how they're going to roll out six five and the other things that they have to upgrade is they upgrade to six five, which we fully understand. Um, <clears throat> that's the largest one. There's obviously certain accounts that, um, you know, uh, you know the sort of deep, deep into the defense department, for example, for where some of the standard cloud models are a little tricky. So the nice thing about working with them, because we're doing some work more on a trial basis with them and design partner relationships, is we're learning a tremendous amount about how to yeah. accommodate yeah, some right. of those pieces. Sure. Um, uh, and then the things that we're getting feedback on that we're starting to work on, um, <clears throat> uh, an interesting piece of feedback we got was, um, you know, when people think about their most critical systems, they have non-virtualized workloads, right? They have a, a database that is sitting on bare metal. And so there's been a lot of asks for, can I extend the model uh, to be able to have a sort of a Linux and a Windows driver that can extend it, which, which, we're, which we're doing and we're accommodating. We're finding some interesting ways That's to do that. Right. Um, uh, so... Uh, Lots of new things coming up. Uh, native, native will never quite go. <laughs> I, I don't want to load an OS on a physical <laughs> machine and, and run it. Yeah, so, through the uh, click of a hard drive. Yeah, um, but it's 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 exciting because it's one of the sort of fresher, newer things that I personally have seen on on the security space. But not, but something that's so foundational. That's mm-hmm. not so. That's not esoteric. Right. right? Yeah. All right, we'll pop back up now and do the little bit about Tom Corn. So you've been here now a year and a half. I don't know, know what's your t- term limit on this, on, on the company, or you don't probably have a term limit, hopefully, but what's your term so far? Time and growth. How do you Time like VMware? I don't know. I, I, I love uh, VMware. And, you know, my experience here is perhaps uh, a very uh, unique one in a way. Uh, I suppose my team shares this, which is um, – to get an opportunity to organically create something new. Yeah, this is really green kind of new new, totally new, new, new approach. I can't yeah. tell you how many people came up to us at VMworld and said, what acquisition did this come from? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, and yeah. I actually, I, in some ways, I, I suppose we could take it either way. I sort of took it as a, as a, as a, as a compliment. Sure. But yeah. the, you know, the reality is big companies have a hard time bringing new things yeah, building to, to yeah. market. Yeah. Uh, the easy route is to acquire, and yeah. there's obviously all challenges in acquisition. Um, and I think it says a lot about VMware and from Pat on down to, to say we're really going to innovate and we're going to uh, right. fund these kinds of things. Right. Uh, and the team could not be more excited. You know, when you create something new from the ground up and it's got your name on it and it's like this, you know, it's an it's exciting thing. The it's almost is- a, a fourth level of business here. We got storage, we got network, we got compute, and now we have sec- app security. 100%. Yeah, 100%. really, really cool. And you know, we we started with you when you were you were just getting going on Twitter, right? Uh, I watched <laughs> yeah. you get like twenty followers, and I'm like, hey, you can do it. Really? Like, <laughs> I, I see now you're the, at the real Tom Corn has six hundred and two, so you're you're on your way. I'm right? getting you're, there. You're, you're well. healthy. They did continue to add. I had but surely. I had good mentor. You know, it's been a it's fascinating. I love engaging in that dialogue. Uh, you know, I try. You know, obviously, it's part of my job. I'm reading a lot. 
of uh, research that's going on in the security area, especially around private and public cloud. Um, I'm learning things as I work with our clients, and the opportunity to engage in a dialogue on that and Twitter uh, has been uh, really rewarding and exciting. So um, you're a good guy to follow too, because you're not over tweeting. You're not you're not tweeting when you're taking a bath or anything like that. You're you're tweeting good quality <laughs> quality information. You did one 19 hours ago, you know, about an article that's that's out there yeah. on security and. Your, your, your posts are really solid, so uh, good job there. And it, you're you. at 602, so if you're listening to this and you haven't followed the at the real Tom Corn, you might want to do that because he's a pretty cool guy. Yeah, thank you. The roundtable bump. Yeah, 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 you'll get at least three more <laughs> if we're really, really pushing hard. Well, maybe my mother will start following yeah, me. Now. Elsa will that follow way. you. Yeah. I just did. Yeah, I just did. <laughs> pick that up. Uh, Tom, as always, it's great to have you. You're an SVP. I know you're super busy, and uh, you, you're doing good stuff. I know you got a lot of uh, momentum at VMworld as well, and so looking forward to 2018 and the stuff that you're working on. Yeah, it's a, it's a great business, and Terrific. we appreciate you doing all the work and showing up and being on Twitter and being in the community and uh, you know saying hi to everybody out there on the, in in the real Facebook world. Facebook Live. Yep. Perfect. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. Well, we're at the end of the hour. Anybody have last things before we uh, we, we move on next week? I think it is going to be uh, – we're going to do it Wednesday before Thanksgiving. That's, that's painful, but we are going to do a podcast because we're going to do the 6.5 reasons uh, why to get to 6.5. Right? Because is, it, is, it, is that really the six and a half reasons to upgrade to 6.5? Yeah, we're, we're actually doing a, marketing, we're doing a marketing campaign around it. So it should be the 6.5 reasons to be thankful uh, I talked to Tommy today. I don't know. Maybe he said he wanted to move it into into next week. So, yeah, I think it's going to be next week. I could be wrong, but that's it. But 6.5 reasons to be thankful. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah that's an idea. No, we're not going to go with that because no one's <laughs> thankful because they haven't upgraded yet. You have to be upgraded to be thankful for it. Maybe you could be reasons you could be thankful. So. Mm. All right, we're we're at the end of the hour. Uh, thanks for for joining us. Hope you enjoy the new audio sound. It's kind of weird because um, we haven't had feedback before. It's it's yeah. It's also so rich that now we're kind of like we're all talking quietly and we're like being careful <laughs> not to make too much noise. So Feeling like an NPR to, broadcast. Have to get used to that. We'll see everyone again next week and um, happy. Thanksgiving week for that, and we'll see you again. We're going to hit the big red stop button now.